0: We are starting a new series today, and it is called The Dysfunctional Lovable Church. That's us. We are the Dysfunctional Lovable Church. So uh, if you're new, welcome. Welcome to The Dysfunctional Lovable Church. And uh, we're going to be doing a series through the books of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We're going to divide that up, uh, though it's a lot of scripture to cover. We'll go through 1 Corinthians and then take a little break and come back. But this will be a really important. Uh, series for you to be following along in our daily devotionals, because our daily devotionals are going to cover uh, all the verses of First Corinthians, which we will not be able to do uh, on a Sunday morning. But we, as Christians, want the perfect church. Uh, we, we want to be a part of the perfect church, and I can relate to that as a church planter. So I started a church and when you go to start a church, you want the perfect church. You, you say, we're going to start the perfect church. Our church isn't going to have the problems that those other churches have. But the reality is, we will never find the perfect church. We'll never find the perfect church because we are there. The problem uh, with church is me, the problem with church is you. The problem with church is people. Uh, wherever humans are, we're never going to find the perfect church. So uh, that doesn't mean we should not always be striving to refine the church. We need to be refining the church, reforming the church, making the church better and better and better. If God has put things on our heart, on my heart, on your heart, like anti-racism, like racial equity, like community, like the freedom of the gospel, and we aren't seeing that in the church, we need to be a part of the solution rather than taking a step back and saying, well, the church has all these problems. I'm just not going to get involved in it. But when it comes to church, there's so much that's outside of our control. We do the best we can. As leaders, you do the best you can as a Christian. Uh, But when it comes to so many things, when it comes to the corporate nature of the church or the individual uh, growth of a Christian, the individual growth in your life or in my life, there's so much of that That is up to God. And I take comfort in that. I take comfort in knowing that there's a lot outside of my control that is up to God and God alone. So we titled our series what it is, The Dysfunctional Lovable Church, because the church is lovable. We want you to love the church, and the church loves you. We want you to come to church. We want you to join. We want you to be the church. There's a lot of Christians today that claim Christ... And they love Jesus, but they don't love his church. And think about that for a second. And understand why. I'm not I'm not being judgmental. I've been there myself. Uh, the Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. So Jesus is the groom, and the church is the bride. And it talks about our relationship with Jesus like a wedding and a marriage. So I want you to think about if you have any friends where you, you want to invite your friend over, but you say... Um, Okay, you can come over, husband, uh, but don't bring your wife. Or maybe it's the other way around. You know, wife, you can come over, you're our friend, but don't bring your husband. You know, your spouse is just a little too obnoxious. They're a little too out of our comfort zone. They're a little too wild. They make too big of a mess. Their manners are all out of place. We don't want them at our house. If you were the spouse that was being told that, you might say, Well, we're kind of a package deal. Me and my spouse, we kind of come together. Well, Jesus and his church are a package deal. The bride and the groom, we are the bride, are a package deal when it comes to Jesus. So, as we look at the church and as we enter into this series, uh, there's something I, I do think we need to address in what i call a, a post covid world we all experienced covid uh, that changed the the landscape of church it changed the dynamics of church it changed Uh, The ability to be able to watch church on on TV, uh, which was very needed during the pandemic when we couldn't be together in person. We have a live stream going in the back. Welcome, everybody that's on our live stream. And there's good things about that. But the negative part of that is it started to change how we actually define church. That church, for some, became something that could just be watched on a television screen in the comfort of your home was just you and your family and your dog, and that was church. And it's not that different than going to see a movie. I mean, you're, you're watching the church on YouTube anyway, and you could get done and watch your favorite TV show or clip or reel or whatever it may be. Church, though, was never meant to simply be a program to entertain us. Church is meant to be community. And and so what I want to say, thank you for being here. And, and I know it's summer and, and lots of people are gone and you're here. And I know a lot of our summer folks are watching now and will be back next week and all those sorts of things. But for those of you that are here, thank you. Thank you for making church in person a priority. Because I would say those that say, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Uh, I'm a sports guy and I know not everybody is. Uh, but I think of a sports team, uh, if you think of team sports, uh, t- to have somebody that would say something like, I am a quarterback, a quarterback is the lead position on a football team, they're the ones that calls the plays, they get the, they get the ball, uh, they throw it to their teammates, and you say, I'm a quarterback, and you say, well, what team are you on? And you say, well, I don't have a team, I'm not really into the team thing, I'm just into the quarterback thing. Well, who do you, th- who do you throw the ball to? Uh, nobody but I'm a quarterback. At some point you have to question, are you really a quarterback? I'm not questioning if someone's really a Christian because they don't go to church, but you do have to start questioning what does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to be a quarterback? And, and what does the Bible say about this? So we're going we're to tackle some of this uh, in our series. Um, we are looking at the book of Corinthians, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the city of Corinth in the country of Greece in around 50s AD. Now, the church today is dysfunctional, our church, the church at large, uh, but the church has always been dysfunctional. We have this idea that in the early church... Back when Jesus had had just left, and the early disciples and the apostles, and we read the book of Acts, and they shared everything in common, and it was this beautiful, perfect church. It was not a perfect church. They had lots and lots of problems, and the book of Corinthians, uh, the the church at Corinth specifically had lots and lots of problems. So I want to say to you, if you've been harmed by the church, if you've been harmed by Christians, or you've been harmed by a local church, I want to encourage you to not look to Christians or the church as the example of Christianity. I want to encourage you to look to Christ as the example of Christianity. It was the same in the first century as it is today. I think it's worse today because they didn't have Twitter in the first century. And if you get on Twitter and you read things posted by Christians, you go... How are these people Christians? I don't think I want to be associated with them whatsoever. If they're that, and this is how they're acting in a public space, I don't I don't want to be what they are. And and so these same things were happening in Corinth. Here's a a little photo behind the map of modern day Corinth. You can go and see the ancient uh, ruins of Corinth. This is Apollo's temple. Uh, this is a real city, a real place that you can go visit uh, in Greece. And Paul started this church in the Book of Acts. You can read in Acts chapter eighteen. He started the church with Priscilla and Aquila. Shout out to men and women in leadership together in the church. As this church was started in Corinth, uh, that Paul started his his co planters, Priscilla and Aquila, helped him start up this church. They started evangelizing. They're they're preaching. They're out. He's out in the street people are coming to know Jesus and he stays there for a year and a half. He starts the church and then he moves on to go start more churches. But as he moves on, Paul finds out through the grapevine of churches that the church of Corinth is not living out what they say they believe. So if you ever met a Christian or maybe you've been in this boat yourself and, and you say, well, they say they're a Christian, but they are not living like a Christian. They say they follow Jesus, but their life does not look like Jesus's life. I'm reminded of Pastor Josh's example that he used, I think it was in the fall, about someone who had claimed to be a vegan, and yet they're wearing a leather jacket and eating bacon for breakfast. You're like, huh, I wonder how you could be a vegan and wear a leather jacket and eat bacon for breakfast. Now, it'd be fine to wear a leather jacket and eat bacon if you weren't claiming to be a vegan, but claiming to be a vegan means at some level you're going to actually live like you're a vegan, which would mean you don't eat animal products or, and, and, and you, wouldn't wear a, you wouldn't wear something made out of animal products. And, and this is what Paul's running into with the church. They started this church. This church is set out to live like Jesus, to be like Jesus, and then he finds out that this is not what's happening. So before we dive into the text, we're going to put you back into your groups. Dennis and Debo, you might need to migrate over to this side of the room uh, for this. Um, But we have another set of questions. We'll give you five minutes. And I am taking a little risk here with these questions. I want you to know, though, that there's no wrong answer. Uh, These questions are designed, if you're not a Christian, if you don't go to church, uh, we We really want to hear what you think about these questions. You also don't have to answer. Uh, Just listen to others in your group. If you don't feel comfortable answering these, that would be totally fine. But I think you're going to come up with some perceptive, honest answers with these. The first one, what would you like to see the American church do better? What would you like to see the American, so the broad American church, what would you like to see the American church do better? Even if you're not a Christian, I think you'd have an opinion on that. If you don't go to church, I think you'd have an opinion on that. Number two, what makes it difficult to be a committed part of a local church? So I kind of define that as regular Sunday attendance, serving, midweek groups or outreach. I'm not saying you have to do those things. I'm acknowledging that there is a difficulty and doing those things. And I think it's helpful to just name what some of those difficulties are so we can kind of live in the real world rather than some, you know, well, the pastor wants us to do this. No, there's a reality to this, and we want to try to apply Scripture to our current modern-day reality. So we're going to give you five minutes, break up back into your groups, and then we'll come back and dive into 1 Corinthians 1. Before we jump into the text, Think back to whatever you answered for question number one. That was a setup question, see? Whatever you answered for question number one, what would you like the American church to do better? Um, We need you doing that here at Mosaic. You like that, Bryce? See that? You had witnesses in your group that heard you, so now. But for real, God is calling you to do that. God has put that on your heart. God has put it on your heart to see that there's things in the the American church that don't line up with Scripture. There's things in the American church that don't line up with the path and the way of Jesus, and it's too easy for us to just sort of sit back and criticize that for good reason but never do anything about it. But God wants you to be a part of the solution. That's what the problem is. I'm sorry, that's, that's what the church is. That's the church. The church is doing something about it. I said the church was the bride of Christ. We don't throw stones at Jesus' bride. We are Jesus' bride. And so as the bride... We try to make the church into what Jesus wants the church to be. So let's jump into 1 Corinthians. If, if you want, you could follow along uh, in your Bible, or if you open up your Bible app, you can open up 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to start in verse 10, and uh, it's, it, we're, the section we're going to start in says this. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. That's Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, in all the dysfunction that we're going to run into in the book of 1 Corinthians... The first thing, the first dysfunction, if you will, that Paul addresses is celebrityism in the church, and how celebrityism was dividing the church. You have people that are following Paul. You have people following Apollos. You have people following Peter. And it was like this fourth group that said, well, we're following Christ, it was, it, was a, it was a head-to-head competition. They had maybe different metrics of who they followed and, and how they followed them. But there's a lot of danger to personality-driven ministries, a ministry that's driven by a personality. Did you hear Peter preach? Did you hear Paul preach? I'm only going to church on the weeks Paul preaches when Apollos preaches, that's a skip week. We're not going that week, right? Because that's, that's he's terrible, right? <laughs> I mean, this is what we do in our churches. This is what they were doing in the first century church. And there's a lot of danger in that. And we're starting to see that danger played out in the American church. And I think the American church model has really been built around personality-driven churches. But that then bleeds into the real problem. The real problem of a celebrity-driven church is we lose Christ. If you look at verse 13, Paul he, he, he calls it out. Is Christ divided? Was Paul, I, the, the author, was I crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Paul's saying your focus is wrong when you're focusing on Christian, celebrity, pastors, leaders, authors. Your focus is wrong. You're losing. Christ. He puts himself in Christ's place to, sh- to prove the point. He's like, Jesus is way up here and I and the other church leaders are way down here. And I just want to say that we're going to miss everything that scripture has to say to us in this first chapter if we miss this point. Because when we get into personality-driven ministries, we start to measure success By worldly metrics. So, if we have the metrics of the world, then we're successful. And I would argue, and the daily devotions this week would argue, that Jesus does not live by the metrics of this world, he lives by his own metrics. Metrics meaning the things that matter. Metrics are the things that measure. If you work for a business, it's your bottom line. It's are you making profit, numbers, you know, these sorts of things. Jesus' metrics are very backwards from the world. We're not going to read this whole text because we've got plenty of text to get into in 1 Corinthians 1, but in Acts 14, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I was reminded of this verse where Paul and Barnabas do a bunch of miracles, and the, the people in Lystra, they think they <laughs> say the gods have come among us. They say it's Zeus and it's Hermes. And and here's their response. When Paul and Barnabas heard this, they tore their clothes, which was an act of lament in the Old Testament, and they rushed into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. This is the proper response. (laughs) Nowadays, it feels like uh, church leaders, Christian celebrities, not all, but some, maybe many, would say, you know what? I may not be Zeus and Hermes, but I am pretty sweet, you know? Uh, You're right. You know what? You're right. I'm pretty great. Glory to God. Glory to Jesus. It's all for Jesus, but I'm pretty sweet. Look at me. Look at me. Uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, Seattle Mars Hill. Uh, very popular podcast. I'd encourage you to listen to it if you haven't. Uh, there's a lot of warnings in there about what happens when we have a personality, celebrity-driven church. Uh, there's two Hillsong documentaries now. I didn't know there was going to be a second one. Uh, chronicling what happens when power and money become a metric in a church instead of Jesus. Watch with viewer discretion. I, I felt nauseous watching the Hillsong documentary. Um, so we, we do things for Jesus, we say they're for Jesus, but in the way we do them matters. There's a pattern in the church, big churches, celebrity churches, where sexual abuse continually gets covered up in these churches. It's a pattern. It's not just once, it's not just twice. It continually gets covered up. Why? Because we have to protect the brand. We have to protect our celebrity leader and their best-selling books and the, the brand that we have. It's a pattern. It's a pattern that we have to address. And it's a pattern. And I think 1 Corinthians is telling us it's about Christ. It's not about ego. And again, thinking of Christian Twitter again, there is a, there is a brand of Christianity that is out there. And it's out there. And I, always, I, always, I don't know how much I should talk directly about it or not on a Sunday. I don't know. But I do need to address it and say it's out there. And it's using ego and power and worldly strength to try to win for Christianity. Often using politics. We need to win for Christianity. And I want to argue that this is not the path of Jesus. It's actually the opposite of the path of Jesus to use ego and power and worldly strength to win for Christianity, and that's what 1 Corinthians 1 is leading us to. We pick up in uh, verses 17 and 18. Verse 16 was about baptism being a scoreboard, uh, and then we pick up verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, Paul's saying, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, when we see a cross, like the one on the screen, we see Christianity. We see cross Christianity. We see cross, we see a world religion. We see the famous Jesus. Everybody in the world knows who Jesus is. And yes, we, we might not be popular, in, in, depending on your context. Sometimes that can be a path of upward mobility. Sometimes it can be a path of persecution. But it's no secret who Jesus is. And, and Christianity is, is one of the major world religions in the world. And, and in some contexts, it's going to bring power and opportunity to people. In the first century, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, the cross did not mean power. The cross meant humiliation. The cross meant the ultimate failure in society. It meant foolishness. It meant weakness. To say that your leader got killed on a cross means your movement has no leader. Your movement is a failure. And we have to start seeing what Paul is weaving into 1 Corinthians 1 is the backwards nature of God's power and strength. Whenever he talks about the cross, he's talking about a backwards type of strength that God gives us. I want to give you a, a statement uh, to chew on. As we look at these uh, these these verses about the cross being foolishness when i say this statement what comes to mind just think about it in your head jesus was a loser jesus was a loser you're probably like offended by that don't call jesus a loser that's my god that's my savior jesus lost to the jews he lost to the romans You could argue he did it on purpose, but he still lost. He lost his life on the cross. He was a loser in that he lost the worldly battle, the worldly pursuit of power and success, Jesus lost. He was socially insignificant. He was politically insignificant. He was economically poor. And then he calls us to die to ourselves when he says, lose your life and you will find it. He wants us to be losers too. In the sense that we lose our life, our pursuit of what the world calls power, accolades, fame, whatever it may be. Could you do that and be a Christian? Yes. I'm not saying that you can't. But he says the first will be last. The last will be first. And the world, by its metrics, calls that foolishness. Just like they did in the first century, they do today. The world tells us get all you can. Get all you can. This is what the world tells us have it your way, you rule. This isn't just Burger King. I mean, they've just, they've just summarized it nicely for us into a song. Have it your way at BK. Do you remember Charlie Sheen when he was winning? Does anyone remember that? that phase of popular culture? Charlie Sheen's life is just a total train wreck. And I read an interesting article. He looks back on that time of his life and he says, I was experiencing incredible mental unhealth, incredible addiction problems, and i reg- i regret all of that and i have to rebuild my life from it during that moment big swaths of our culture is saying yes that's what winning is that's what winning means winning is having what doing what charlie sheen was doing with his life having you know the party lifestyle all these sorts of things the way our culture defines winning the way we are told have it your way you rule is fed to us from birth and Anything that questions that would be called foolish. If I were to say in a public, non-church place, um, life is not about getting it your way. Life is not about you being in charge. I would be called a fool. Though, that's the same thing parents tell their kids every day, isn't it? Like, these messages are okay for our kids. We want our kids to understand these things. Share your toys it's not about having it your way. And we're like, give me my toys as an adult. I'm not sharing these. They're mine because I'm an American. And that's what America teaches us. Your stuff is yours. You earned it. You rule. Could you guys click for me, Alan? Where is the wise person? Picking up in verse 20. Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. In Corinth, the writers of the day said there was a wise man on every street who had his own solutions to the world's problems. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? A self-proclaimed wise person on every street, on every social media handle, on every TV network, on every news channel that has their solutions to the world's problems. The world through its wisdom did not know Jesus because it was so wise and Jesus was seemed so foolish to the world. Verses 22 to 25, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Let me just start by saying, I'm guilty of verse 22. How many times have I, how many times have you demanded a sign from God? God, I see the miracles in the Bible. I hear other people talking about miracles. I need to see a sign. I've got this prayer request and I need it answered. This is real. I'm not mocking that. I genuinely struggle with that. I need you to answer this prayer. You've forgotten about me. Are you even there? I demand a sign from you. Paul's saying that's what was happening in the first century with the Jews. And the Greeks demanded wisdom. The Greeks wanted to philosophize more. Prove this. Tell me that it's true. Give me more evidence that this is true. And verse 25 is God's mic drop. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What he's saying is that if you take the wisest wisdom of humans, the wisest wisdom we have, it's actually here, and then you take God's foolishness. God's foolishness is wiser than the wisest of human wisdom. If you take the strongest of human strength and you put it here, God's weakness is stronger than the strongest human strength. Jesus wins through weakness. He wins through weakness over and over and over again. And he calls us to do the same. He calls us to follow him. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called Oh, this is, I don't need to read all this. I'm going to save a little time, but this is a really funny passage. I highlighted everything in yellow. Paul gives all these backwards, like backhanded compliments to the church. He's, he's, he's addressing you, and he's like, you know what? I don't really see anybody here that's wise by human standards. Nope. Um, nobody here is influential. Nobody here has noble birth. Noble birth, anybody? No? Okay. Okay. Um, Well, God chose the foolish things of the world. He chose you. He was like, who are the foolish things of the world? I'm going to choose them, and I'm going to choose the weak things of the world. So, okay, that's you. You're the weak things, and you're the lowly things of the world and the despised things of the world. And then he sums it up, the things that are not, again, on the worldly metrics, the worldly metrics. You ever feel like you don't measure up to the worldly metrics? You're not as famous as you want to be. You're not as powerful as you want to be. You're not as rich as you want to be. You're not as influential as you want to be. These are the people that God called to His church to nullify to nullify the things of this world. That's like thanks, <laughs> thanks for thanks for the description. But here's the thing: today in the U.S. in the church, we need to keep it that way. Now, I'm not saying don't become educated, don't become smart. No, certainly, become as educated as you can. It's not talking about intelligence and learning and smart. It's about the way we live. It's about the metrics that we care about and the way we try to win. So the the Christians out there, and I kind of put them in quotations because I don't think they're following the path of Jesus and the path of the cross. They're trying to win the wrong way. They're trying to win by being jerks. they're, They're trying to win by not being loving, They're trying to win by not being meek, not being humble, not listening, not being compassionate, not able to put themselves in someone else's shoes that's been oppressed, that's been harmed by our culture, but instead just listens to what they hear on TV from the talking heads and they assign a label to somebody and they assume they know everything about them. It's not the way of Jesus. Verse 30, and there's just two verses left, it says, it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. The only place in the universe that you are going to find righteousness, holiness, and redemption is in Jesus. We're going to take communion here in a moment. In fact, Desmond and Mike, you guys can come back up and um, get us ready for communion. I love taking communion every Sunday that we can at Mosaic because it's a reminder to me. That my righteousness, my holiness, my redemption is found in Jesus. I can't earn it. You can't earn it. It doesn't matter how much worldly accolade you get. You can never earn right standing before God. But you already are right before God. He already sees you as holy because of Jesus. There's nothing else that will give you this. And the last verse of 1 Corinthians 1. It says, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. From this verse, you can unpack this very simply as saying, we are not trying to make ourselves famous. We want Jesus to be famous, and we are a very small part of that. You get to be a very small part, and I get to be a very small part of making Jesus famous. What's required of us is faithfulness. And God, I believe, is honored by our small acts of faithfulness. Small acts of faithfulness are hard because they don't show up on the scoreboard. They don't show up on the scoreboard. You don't get your name in the box score. You don't get your name in the newspaper. The small acts of faithfulness is what God is asking of us. So I challenge you, even as, especially as we go into this summer, as a, as a new church and as we, as, we, as we head into the summer to see what God has for us, I challenge you to consider signing up for Summer Lights if you haven't yet. Our, our sign-up booth is in the back to check it out, get some more information. I encourage you as you look at your Sundays to make church a priority. doesn't mean you can't go on vacation and have a good summer, but to say, I'm going to faithfully make Mosaic a place that is loving and welcoming to hurting and broken people where we can be a conduit of Jesus's love, small acts of faithfulness. And am I preaching to myself here as a church planter? Yes, I am. (laughs) Because I need scripture and I I need to be preached to. And I'm so glad that this is what God calls us to. Let's pray together. Uh, and then we're going to close out the service with communion and with worship. And, uh, continue to respond to this message lord thank you so much that you didn't come to save us by the way of the world you didn't come in a way that was filled with political or military power you came as a poor carpenter you were a refugee you were compassionate to those that were on the outcasts of society god and you call us to the same You call us to small acts of faithfulness in our lives, our individual lives, our lives at home, our lives here in the Garfield Park neighborhood. God, with cookouts and with the Boys and Girls Club volunteering and with summer lights and with small groups and with Sunday church, God, you call us to small acts of faithfulness. And God, we are so thankful for your faithfulness as we come to the communion table. We are thankful for your faithfulness, Jesus that you've done it all to make us righteous, you've done it all to make us holy, and we rest in the completed work of your death on the cross for our sins. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.